0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. The sudden, brutal murder of Carl Smalls Jr. was classified as a gang hit. But when his convicted killer was freed from prison 16 years early... Carl's death became a catalyst for changing how the South Carolina justice system works. This is Jamie and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I examine the case of Carl Smalls Jr. This case takes us to Columbia, the capital city of South Carolina. It's located in the geographic center of the state, surrounded by three large rivers that drove commerce in the days before freight trains and cars. In the 2020 census, Columbia ranked as the second most populous city in South Carolina, with about a quarter of residents being students at the 11 colleges the city houses. Columbia's name is often abbreviated as COLA, and from this came its nickname, Soda City. Columbia is also home to the state government Fort Jackson military base, and a number of other agencies, local and federal, that radiate outward from the state house grounds into suburbs. While generally considered safer than a number of larger metropolitan areas around the country, Columbia still has pockets of danger. Bars that cater to college students cluster together in areas that have gained rough reputations and garnered scrutiny from police. Many of the nightclubs that spring up in strip mall complexes between neighborhoods become hotspots for scuffles and arrests. College football gives crowds another reason to party through Columbia's mild autumn and winter weather. Players from surrounding schools join in when they can as a way to lessen the stress of performing both academically and on the field. In the first two and a half hours of December 7th, 2002, a young man was found dead on the floor of Club Voodoo in Columbia. The club was located on Garner's Ferry Road, a long stretch of strip mall clusters that runs through the southeast part of town. Although Columbia generally holds a smaller population than a lot of state capitals, It swells with college students from August to May and they flock to places where they can let off steam. Club Voodoo had been bursting at the seams earlier filled with members and guests of the host fraternity Alpha Phi Alpha and sorority Alpha Kappa Alpha who rented out the club until 3 a.m. Columbia is a hub of state higher education including a number of historically black colleges and universities and both organizations drew from them to form that night's crowd. This party in particular drew a crowd of students who played football for nearby colleges, the University of South Carolina and Benedict College, plus players from Clemson University and South Carolina State College, which are located further upstate. According to later accounts from Carl Small's mother, Lily, the 22-year-old athlete and his 19-year-old girlfriend arrived at Club Voodoo around 11.30 p.m. on December 6, 2002. Nothing seemed unusual then, and after a while, Carl's girlfriend went home by herself. later telling authorities that Carl said he'd get a ride from friends later. Around 1.15 in the morning, county deputies were called out to the club to break up a fight because someone reportedly had a gun. However, they didn't find anything and no one in the crowd seemed to know who'd called. So the police left without further investigation. Carl's mom said that his girlfriend and another friend who was at the club party told her that Carl was unarmed and didn't get into any scuffles while he was there. Another attendee, however, said they saw Carl arguing with someone at some point, but it seemed to de-escalate before anything physical happened. Richland County Sheriff spokesman Joseph Felici told the Orangeburg South Carolina Times a Democrat newspaper, nobody knew who had a gun and you just can't begin searching people. But by 2.20 a.m., Carl Smalls Jr. was dead. Someone had called the deputies a second time that night so they headed back out to Club Voodoo. When they got there, It was deserted, except for Carl's body, lying face down near the exit. At six feet tall and about 280 pounds of muscle, he'd blended in well with the group of football players who were partying at the club. But by the time police found him, everyone else had scattered, and Carl lay alone on the club's floor. The county coroner identified Carl soon after he was brought in, and said that he'd suffered three gunshot wounds, one in his hip, one in his stomach, and the fatal shot in his chest. Police found bullets near the body, but refrained from telling the public what caliber they were. When Carl's parents were notified, his mother Lily was contemplating when to pull out and decorate the Christmas tree that she and Carl Sr. had in storage. His sister was at a basketball game in Columbus, Ohio, where she was playing for the Spartanburg branch of the University of South Carolina. Once Lily received the devastating news, she called her daughter to let her know what happened. Once the whole family knew, none of them felt like going through with their holiday plans. Instead, they waited to see what would come of the investigation into Carl's death, which had already been officially declared a homicide. Unfortunately, Answers would be painfully few and far between. Those who know me know that I am completely obsessed with skincare, which is why I recently started using a Blissey pillowcase. And what does a pillowcase have to do with skincare? A lot. My Blissey pillowcase is made of 100% mulberry silk, so it's gentle and it doesn't create tugging on my skin while I sleep which could mean less wrinkles in the future. Silk also keeps the moisture in your skin and hair because it doesn't absorb the moisture off your face. So all of those expensive skincare products that I use stay on my face and not on my pillowcase. Blissy Silk pillowcases are temperature regulating and they have naturally insulating properties to keep you cool and reduce sweat while sleeping, which can be a contributing factor to acne. So, on top of helping with wrinkles, dry, flaky, and red skin, you'll also get a better night's rest because you won't be waking up to flip the pillow to the cooler side. My Blissy pillowcase has completely elevated my sleeping experience. The silk feels so luxurious and it's more breathable than the satin pillowcases I used before. The 100% mulberry silk is high quality and naturally hypoallergenic, so you can sleep more comfortably and throw them in the washing machine for an easy wash. Blissey Silk Pillowcases are the best silk pillowcases on the market. They have a ton of different prints and colors, and they make great gifts because there's an option for literally anyone. Men love them too. They have over 1.5 million raving fans, and you could be the next. Try now risk-free for 60 nights at blissey.com murderish, and get an additional 30% off. That's B-L-I-S-S-Y dot com slash murderish and use code murderish to get an additional 30% off. Sleep cooler this summer with Blissy. Carl Smalls Jr. was born on September 29, 1980 to Lily and Carl Smalls Sr. The budding family lived on a United States military base when Carl Jr. arrived, but they soon moved across the Atlantic to settle in the West Ashley District of Charleston, South Carolina. Carl Sr. was a postal worker, and Lily worked at the Charleston Naval Weapons Station's legal department. The couple provided a close-knit, loving, middle-class life for Carl Jr. and his sister, Adrienne, who was three years younger, and both siblings frequently visited their parents after leaving home for college. Lily said about her children to the Columbia newspaper, The State, It was just the two of them, they were real close. She went on to say about Adrian, I know it's going to be hard on her. Carl's parents described him as a gentle soul, kind and caring to everyone. They told the state that he was a big brother to many of the neighborhood kids, listening to their problems with a sympathetic ear and giving them rides to the local mall. Lily told the paper that during Thanksgiving break, a few weeks before his death, Carl Jr. said he had a lot to be thankful for, that he and his sister had traveled safely from their schools, that the family was together for the holiday, and that he was living his dream of playing college football. Carl excelled athletically at school and channeled a lot of his energy into sports from a young age, earning himself the family nickname, Dash. He won two back-to-back state discus championships while attending St. Andrews High School in Charleston and showed equal promise in football. While at St. Andrews, he earned first-team 3A All-State honors in the game. This meant that Carl Jr. was awarded for his performance as a starter in the midsize range of state high schools and earned a spot on a state championship team. Soon, he'd be ranked the 18th best football player across all of South Carolina. At the start of every calendar year, players like Carl are courted and recruited by colleges across the state and nation in hopes of matching with their dream school. In February of 2000, Carl received a scholarship to go to the University of South Carolina in the state capital of Columbia starting that fall, and he seemed eager to get right into it. In coverage of his recruitment, Carl said he was excited to work with University of South Carolina coach Lou Holtz, who headed to SC in 1999 after a stint up north, coaching Notre Dame's Fighting Irish. According to sports coverage at the time, Holtz was also pleased to have Carl in the upcoming class. Carl was a standout player in a state that takes college football very seriously, so he didn't make his choice of higher education lightly. Over the summer, Carl told Charleston newspaper, The Post and Courier, Now I have to stay with the books and stay with the weights. The tempo will be faster and the players will be stronger. So I have to be ready. Carl entered the university with the determination and studiousness that had served him so well throughout his life. Besides football, Carl loved to draw and would eventually declare studio art as his major along with African-American studies when he transferred colleges. But his sports experience with the University of South Carolina ended up being more disappointing than he'd been expecting. He went into his first season as a redshirt freshman during the 2000 season, which meant he practiced and trained with the team and retained his athletic scholarship, but he didn't play in official games against other schools. In another article from the Post and Courier, Carl explained that the university wanted him to play a different position than the one that had made him an all-star and he didn't want to wait behind other players who were more experienced in that new position. He told the paper, why change all the things that made me successful and got me to USC? So for the 2001 school year, Carl transferred to the University of North Carolina. At that school, he would be able to play the position he'd honed without competing against his own teammates for game time. Even after Carl moved to North Carolina, he kept ties that he'd made in high school and his first year of college to the South. According to his mother, Lily, Carl visited both Columbia and Charleston often, checking in with his family and hanging out with athletes he'd grown up playing with and against. One of his friends and former University of South Carolina teammates said that Carl stayed optimistic, kept focused, and stayed friendly. Even though things didn't go his way, he still worked hard, the classmate said to the state. Personality-wise, he was a great guy. Carl seemed to keep his head in the books and his eye on the football throughout 2001. But by the end of the season, he'd been benched from the last two games. Local and national news stories about his death only said that UNC's head football coach benched Carl for violating team rules. In 2015, Sports Illustrated pointed out that Carl's suspension happened in the middle of a scandal. A recent outside investigation showed that about 1,500 UNC athletes had been enrolled in fake classes to keep their grades high enough to stay in revenue sports, games like football that brought the university a lot of outside money. One of the professors in the middle of the scandal said that he had helped keep the scheme going because he didn't want UNC's athletes to lose their way to stay in school. The professor said that he'd seen two students become ineligible for athletics and then shortly thereafter, get into trouble. One, he said, ended up going to jail, and the other, he claimed, was murdered after he went back to his hometown. These two former athletes, the professor claimed, is why he started participating in the Phantom Classes scandal. Sports Illustrated said that Carl fit the description of the murdered former athlete the professor was referring to. But there was evidence that the professor had been participating in the scam for almost a decade before Carl got to college. The magazine said the direct causation of the professor's participation in the scandal remained unclear and Carl himself was never implicated as one of the student-athletes who received special treatment. What is certain is that Carl was on football suspension when he was murdered during the criminal investigation, Columbia police launched a citywide initiative to stop gang violence in the capital, and several news outlets speculated that the shooting was related to Carl's affiliation with local groups. However, both of Carl's parents denied that their son had anything to do with gangs, saying their son didn't look for trouble but would stick up for himself if necessary. He will defend himself even if it kills him, his father told the state. And it may have this time. The immediate investigation into Carl Small's murder didn't yield any results. Although police had recovered shell casings, they were from two different guns and no witnesses said they'd seen anyone with firearms at the party. In an article from the state published December 9th, two days after Carl's death, police said they didn't have any suspects yet. Representatives from Alpha Phi Alpha didn't comment on the incident, and the sorority Alpha Kappa Alpha denied sharing hosting duties that night. Both organizations were part of the University of South Carolina, but were not officially representing the university during the party as a spokesperson for the university made sure to emphasize. Despite this, and the fact that Carl had not been a member of either organization, the university's fraternity and sorority system was held under close scrutiny in those first few weeks. An editorial in the state from January of 2003 took the system to task for taking part in a bigger issue that would soon overshadow Carl as an individual and set county law enforcement on a hunt for his killer's role in nationwide forces. Cold turkey may be great on sandwiches, but there's a better way to break your bad habits. We're not talking about some weird mind voodoo from your crazy neighbor or dancing in a ritual around a bonfire while chanting under the guidance of a self-proclaimed guru. I'm talking about our sponsor, Fume, that breaks habits in a different way. Rather than forcing a drastic transformation, Fume suggests a more subtle approach, eliminating the bad aspect from your habit. Fume is an innovative award-nominated device that helps you break hand-to-mouth habits with a unique approach to three components of habit formation, flavor, fidget, and fixation. Instead of electronics, Fume is completely natural Instead of vapor, fume uses flavored air. Instead of harmful chemicals, fume uses all natural delicious flavors. Your fume device comes with an adjustable airflow dial and it's designed with movable parts and magnets for fidgeting, giving your fingers a lot to do, which is very helpful for de-stressing and anxiety while breaking your habit. My close friend was pleasantly surprised by how beautiful the fume device is because it's made of real wood, and how well-weighted it is in her hands. Stopping is something we all put off because it's hard, but switching to Fume is easy, enjoyable, and even fun. Fume has served over 100,000 customers and has thousands of success stories, and there's no reason that can't be you. Join Fume in accelerating humanity's breakup from destructive habits by picking up the journey pack today. Head to tryfume.com and use code MURDERISH to save 10% off when you get the journey pack today. That's tryfum.com and use code MURDERISH to save an additional 10% off your order today. In early January of 2003, about a month after Carl's death, police charged two men with the fatal shooting. Witnesses had come forward and identified 19-year-old Ryan Brooks and 20-year-old Gerard Price as suspects. After what law enforcement described as a few weeks of negotiation, Brooks turned himself in on January 9th. About a week after that, 20-year-old Anthony Sherman Patrick was charged with accessory to murder and turned himself in as well. Brooks was let out on $500,000 bail, Patrick on $250,000, but Gerard Price remained at large for another two months. He told police he'd surrender after his birthday, which was on February 22nd, but that didn't happen. The sheriff set a reward for $3,000 for any information about Price's whereabouts and was in talks with America's Most Wanted to broadcast a bulletin about him. But before the segment aired, Price finally turned himself in on March 20th of 2003. After compiling testimony from eyewitnesses and the three accused men, county law enforcement put together a probable scenario for how the night had gone. At some point between 1 and 2 a.m. on December 7th, Brooks, Price, and Carl had argued. Brooks got angry enough to go outside to the parking lot and grab the 380 caliber semi-automatic gun that he kept in his car. Where Price produced his gun from was less clear, but he joined Brooks in confronting Carl and both men used their firearms on the victim. Afterward, police claimed, Patrick helped Brooks and Price flee the scene. While the mechanics of the murder became relatively straightforward, the motive was not immediately apparent. Soon after the arrests, however, local law enforcement thought they had it figured out. They attributed Carl's death to gang violence. Columbia, South Carolina does not top anyone's list of cities associated with street gangs. According to James C. Howell's book, Gangs in America's Communities, gangs didn't take hold in the Southern United States until around the 1970s. Even then, they mostly centered around Miami, Florida, and San Antonio, Texas. Howell posits, that this was because the region lacked a major central metropolitan area and the population was relatively dispersed. By the mid-1990s, the area had caught up with the rest of the country in terms of gang violence. Howell says that South Carolina alone saw a 15% increase in gang activity by 1995. A report from the South Carolina Department of Public Safety covering the years of 1998 to 2007, which encompasses the time of Carl's murder and its investigation, stated that the increase in all crimes by gang members increased almost 29% in that time period, and gang-related murders increased by almost 6% during those same years. Although the hard numbers were still relatively modest compared to bigger cities, Columbia and the rest of Richland County did experience the same jump in gang activity seen all over the Southeast. Howell said that by the time of these studies, the Crips were one of the most significant gangs operating in the Deep South states. Both Ryan Brooks and Gerard Price were said to be affiliated with the Crips' infamous rivals, the Bloods. Affiliation meant something looser on the East Coast than it did in the Crips and Bloods home turf of Los Angeles on the West Coast. Another South Carolina study, this one conducted by the State Criminal Justice Academy and researchers at the University of South Carolina, said that most local gangs weren't actually tied to the original West Coast gangs, but instead used their names for toughness and immediate recognition. Fifth Circuit First Assistant Solicitor, David Posco said that gang activity in Columbia had become more noticeable by 2002 and 2003, and that the Crips and Bloods had both set up recruitment in every state. By the time Carl was murdered, the South Carolina-based subsets of each gang had grown more organized. Gerard Price was said to have forged a true connection between LA and SC through his supposedly high placement in the Bloods. The state reported that local prosecutors said Price had a ranking position in the California gang, but someone claiming to be Price called the paper to deny that accusation. The man said, if I'm such a big gang member, why would I be scared? There are people looking for me to try and take my life and they have threatened my family. The man claiming to be Gerard Price also said that he and Carl had met for the first time the night of the shooting and that he did not kill Carl. The state was never able to substantiate the caller's claims and law enforcement didn't look into it. Carl's mother Lily said her son was never involved in any gang or gang activity. She said she heard from one of Carl's friends who was at Club Voodoo that night, that Carl and Gerard Price argued about an unknown topic, but no evidence ever turned up to either contradict or clarify her statement. Still, county and state law officials continued to treat the investigation as a beef between local groups of the blood and Crips. Reports based on the approximately 50 eyewitness statements taken stated there were a number of attendees wearing either blue or red, the official colors of each respective gang. Police used Carl's murder along with a number of recent proven gang hits as examples of how crime was getting more organized across the state. Alpha Phi Alpha and Alpha Kappa Alpha were chastised for letting gang members into their party. Anti-gang social and education programs sprung up to keep the public informed and kids away from violence. In February, Lily and Carl Sr. held a press conference at the Richland County Sheriff's Office to ask the public for cooperation and any information that witnesses may have about their son's case. They said they knew it was difficult to come forward, but the loss of their son was deeply painful, and they would be forever grateful for whatever help the public could give. Not much is known about the personal lives of Ryan Brooks or Gerard Price, except that they both lived in Columbia and were natives of the area. Both had past criminal records before their involvement with Carl Smalls Jr. According to county court records, Gerard Price was born in 1980 and had just turned 22 at the time of his arrest for Carl's murder. Subsequent police records described him as a 5 foot 10 inch black man who weighed about 250 pounds. He'd previously been charged with disorderly conduct, several minor traffic violations, trafficking cocaine and possessing cocaine with the intent to distribute near a school. In August of 2002, only four months before Carl Smalls' death, Price was charged with lynching in the second degree. In South Carolina legal terms, lynching doesn't automatically mean the practice of or attempt to hang someone. The state code of laws defines second-degree lynching as any act of violence inflicted by a mob upon the body of another person and from which death does not result. Prosecutors and witnesses used this previous conviction as further evidence that Gerard Price was involved with gangs. A search of his apartment turned up several items that directly linked him to the Bloods, including photos of Price and other men throwing up the Bloods' gang sign. They also found clothes in the Bloods' color red, bulletproof vests, a Bloods' handbook, and a document that Price signed to pledge his loyalty to the Blood Nation. Price didn't deny that he was affiliated with the Bloods, but he emphasized that he wasn't a high-ranking member in the organization. He said he didn't have any power or influence and that shooting Carl was pure self-defense. Ryan Christopher Brooks was born in 1983 and was 19 when he was arrested on murder charges. County court records show that Brooks was previously charged with illegal possession of pistols and marijuana in the year leading up to Carl's murder. At the time of the shooting, there was also a warrant for Brooks on second degree lynching charges. He was accused of beating a man on the head. Both Brooks and Price claimed they did not know Carl before running into him at Club Voodoo. And although they did know each other beforehand, they weren't close. Some speculation about their gang affiliations led several witnesses to say that Carl was a member of the Crips and Brooks and Price recognized him as a rival because of external signifiers like clothing color. There was no definitive evidence that Carl Smalls Jr. was a member of the Crips. Searches into his possessions and background supported his mother's claims that he was not a gang member. That didn't stop the trial from becoming a springboard to jumpstart anti-gang action throughout South Carolina. Gerard Price's trial began in the middle of December 2003. He pleaded not guilty to first-degree murder and his lawyer, Columbia defense attorney Cam Littlejohn, denied that his client had the violent criminal gang connections the other side accused him of. Little John said in court, "You're going to hear a lot of conflicting and confusing versions about gang activity that night." Fifth Circuit First Assistant Solicitor David Pasco was the prosecutor, and with help from Richland County Sheriff Leon Lott, he set out to prove that this was indeed a case of the Crips and Bloods feuding. The defense brought Ryan Brooks as their main witness. On the stand, Brooks said that he'd seen Carl dancing and putting up gang signs associated with the Crips that evening. But that wasn't why he'd been shot. Brooks testified that Carl was acting loud and aggressive, coming at Brooks and Price in a manner that scared Brooks. So much so that Brooks went to his car and got his gun because he was worried that Carl would rob them. Ryan Brooks said on the stand that he saw Carl charge at Gerard Price when Price seemed to reach into his own waistband. That started a fight, according to Brooks. Then Price and Carl fought over Price's pistol. Brooks said he shot Carl once in self-defense before leaving the scene and said that he didn't know what happened after that. Another witness said they heard the first gunshot and then saw another witness on the ground They said they saw the second and third shots going straight down into Carl, who appeared unarmed. Although Ryan Brooks denied being associated with the Bloods, the prosecution entered evidence that showed Brooks in photos with known gang members throwing up Bloods gang signs, just like Price. First Assistant Solicitor David Posco also brought in investigator James Richardson as an expert on gangs in South Carolina. Richardson attested that both Brooks and Price were members of the Bloods and that Brooks was high up, a supreme. Defense attorney Littlejohn entered an objection to this statement because Richardson's assertion was based on informants and not firsthand knowledge. However, the objection was overruled and allowed in as evidence in the original trial the 12 Richland County jurors found Gerard Price guilty of murder. He was sentenced to 35 years to life in prison, but would end up serving far less. Shopify has already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify offers in-person selling too? Yes, Shopify helps you sell everywhere, online, in-store, and on social media. Shopify POS is the command center for your retail store. It helps you accept payments, manage inventory, and everything else you need to sell in person. Shopify provides a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly integrates your in-person and online sale in one place. Easily track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. And Shopify's plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok and Instagram are a must have for driving store traffic. With Shopify, you'll be accepting payments by smartphone, transforming your tablet into a point of sale system and using their POS Go Mobile device, a battle-tested solution like a boss. Shopify has award-winning help to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com/murderish, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com/murderish to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com/murderish. Ryan Brooks was tried separately in a trial that took place shortly after Gerard Price's. Brooks's trial received much less press attention and Brooks said he hadn't made any deals with prosecutors for testifying against Price. After less than a week, a jury convicted Ryan Brooks of manslaughter. He was sentenced to 30 years in prison. According to South Carolina court records, Anthony Sherman Patrick, the accused accomplice, was also convicted and sentenced to seven years in prison plus probation for his role in Carl Smalls' death. With their son's killers and their accomplice locked away, it seemed the Smalls' family might finally be able to move forward from this tragedy. Unfortunately, their sense of peace would be crudely and quietly interrupted long before it was supposed to be. On March 15th of 2023, Gerard Price was secretly released from prison after serving 19 years of his 35-to-life sentence. He wasn't supposed to get out for another 16 years, and then he ran. On December 30th of 2022, almost two decades after Carl's death, 5th Judicial Circuit Court Judge Casey Manning signed off on Price's early release in front of a state solicitor and a county legislator. Judge Manning said that it was because Price had exhibited excellent behavior in prison, including conduct that potentially saved the lives of several guards and fellow inmates during various threats over the years. Gerard Price also, the order claimed, gave law enforcement a lot of information that helped capture other gang-related criminals in the state. While this is technically a reason that South Carolina inmates can be released early, there was no precedent for knocking that much time off of a murder conviction. On top of that, no hearing was conducted. The victim's family didn't get a prior warning or a chance to speak, and Judge Manning didn't consult police, deputies, or any other law enforcement or attorneys who'd worked on the case. It also happened to be Judge Manning's last day of work before he retired. And the early release was sealed after a brief in-chambers meeting. When Gerard Price's release came to light in April of 2023, it caused an uproar. Posco, the prosecutor on the original murder case, found out about a month after Price was released and immediately went to work with the state attorney general to get Price back behind bars the South Carolina Supreme Court negated Judge Manning's release order and Governor Henry McCaster launched a formal inquiry that probed whether this had happened with other cases during Judge Manning's tenure. Turns out it had in about a dozen previous cases according to the state's investigation. After Price's early release, the state legislature considered reforms to the way South Carolina judges are selected to ensure that overrides like this one would be impossible to conduct without oversight. The county solicitor, Todd Rutherford, and Fifth Circuit solicitor, Byron Gibson, who'd been the only witnesses to Price's early release order, pointed fingers at each other, claiming the other had overly influenced Judge Manning to set Gerard Price free based on nothing but flimsy excuses and backroom political deals. Rutherford is also a representative in the state legislature and his involvement sparked controversy on how South Carolina politicians could influence judges in cases like Gerard Price's. The news hit the Smalls family the heaviest. Carl Sr. told Charleston paper, The Post and Courier, that Price's sudden release made them feel like our son was being murdered all over again. Lily and Carl Sr. told the state that they'd gotten a phone call from a victim's advocate two hours after Gerard Price had been released in March. They didn't get any prior notification that this would even be a possibility so soon, and they were told that this was a final decision. To make matters even worse, Carl Sr. said they were told that Gerard Price, a convicted murderer, would not have any parole or official supervision either. The Smalls said that this news was very tough to take. Carl Sr. told the state, the secret deal violated his trust in the South Carolina judiciary process and made me look at it as more of a criminal assistance system instead of a criminal justice system. Posco teamed up with the Smalls family again as they added their voices to those rallying for state justice reform. He also joined the effort to find Gerard Price who disappeared as the publicity about his release reached a fever pitch. Local law enforcement was forced to admit that they didn't know where Price was. By the beginning of May of 2023, South Carolina law enforcement put together an official search team and offered $30,000 for anyone who had information on Gerard Price's whereabouts. By June 7th, the FBI had joined the hunt. They put out a federal arrest warrant for Price, charging him with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, adding their own reward of $30,000. They told the Post and Courier that Gerard Price had connections in New York, North Carolina, Georgia, and New Mexico, so they were concentrating in those locations. Rutherford objected that since Price had given up a lot of information about other criminals, He'd be in bodily danger if he was forced to go back to prison. But the state Supreme Court's ruling held. And finally, on July 17th of 2023, Gerard Price was sent back to South Carolina in custody. He'd been located and arrested in New York City the week prior. Gerard Price is serving the rest of his sentence in the state where he murdered Carl Smalls Jr. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you enjoy Murderish, do me the biggest favor by leaving a positive rating and review in any podcast app. If you'd like to meet me and so many more true crime podcasters, you can at CrimeCon this year. I'll be on Podcast Row at CrimeCon in Orlando, Florida from September 22nd to September 24th of 2023. I'll be meeting fans and enjoying the company of so many other true crime podcasters and high profile people who work in the true crime space. If you're planning to attend CrimeCon, and I hope you are, use my promo code MURDERISH for 10% off a standard badge. Go to CrimeCon.com, use code MURDERISH for 10% off. I really hope to see you there. If you're listening right now, make sure you're following me on Instagram and TikTok at Jamie on air. That's J-A-M-I on air on Instagram and TikTok. Especially because I recently started a true crime TV club called the Serial Streamers. The Serial Streamers is just like a book club, only it's a club for people who binge true crime documentaries. If you want to join the Serial Streamers TV club, just follow me on Instagram at Jamie on air and watch for videos about the latest TV series that we're watching together. So you can join us in the comments and share your thoughts on each series. That's Jamie on Air on Instagram and TikTok. I also record video of every Serial Streamers episode on YouTube. So make sure you're subscribed on YouTube at Jamie on Air. If you want to hear ad-free episodes of Murderish, you can do so by signing up for Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon, or just go to Murderish.com. And then you can start enjoying ad-free episodes right away. Thank you so much to Michelle Elf for becoming the latest Murderish Behind the Mic patron. I appreciate your support. I host another true crime podcast called Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago. A woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. Dirty Money Moves is available in all podcast apps. This episode was researched and written by Melanie Griffin. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.